0: God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He bled and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lived. How sweet to hold our newborn baby And feel the pride and joy he gives But greater still this calm assurance This child can face uncertain days Because Christ lives And then one day, I'll cross that river, I'll fight life's fine. no war with pain, and then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory, and I'll know he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives Because
1: Wow, what an incredible song. You know, I love that song. And, and wasn't that cool the way they did that? I, I just want to say thank you to our worship team and to our technical team for putting that together for us for this weekend. Hey, I just want to say happy Easter. It is so good uh, to be with you. Thank you for inviting us into your home. Uh, and by the way, that Easter outfit that you're wearing, you look fantastic. Those sweats, those pajamas, those jeans, I, you look so comfortable. And it's, it's good to be with you. You know, we've talked about um, that this year, This Easter is kind of an unprecedented event in that we're meeting in homes. And it's true. I mean, most of us have never done this in our lifetime. But the reality is, is that in the very first Easter, the scriptures say that the disciples went to their homes. And so in one respect, we're going back to the original Easter of the way it was originally done, not in a building. Now I love Easter, I love the message of Easter, I love being together at Easter, and so today as we talk about uh, the resurrection of Christ, I'm a little bit bummed because I'm preaching in an empty room, but the thing that excites me is that I'm preaching about an empty tomb. Bummed about the empty room, glad you're with us, but I'm very excited about the empty tomb that Jesus Christ is alive. You know, For hundreds and hundreds, literally hundreds and maybe thousands of years, The church on Easter has engaged in a greeting. In some circles, it's referred to as the Paschal greeting. And it goes this way. Someone would would start and say, He is risen, And then the other person would respond back and say, he is risen indeed. And I thought maybe in your homes or wherever you are, in your man cave, in your garage, when you're with your family, that we would maybe start off greeting one another with that. One of you say, he is risen. And then the other one say back, he is risen indeed and uh, likewise. And and if you're by yourself and you don't have someone to greet, uh, obviously you can do that in the live chat. Greet those who are online, he is risen, he is risen indeed. And if you're not on the live chat, then why don't you and I do that? I'll just say that. He is risen. And then you can say it back to me. He is risen indeed. And it's a great, great reminder of what we celebrate. And there's been question of where did that tradition even start? And, and there's a little uncertainty. Most believe that it was a part of the Eastern Orthodox Church that dates back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But its root is found even in the very first Easter. There's a passage in Luke that talks about two individuals who on that first resurrection Sunday were walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They were with him. And they had kind of this spiritual discussion, kind of a Bible study led by Jesus. That's gotta be a good Bible study. And then they have a meal together. And then they go back to the disciples and they report this. The Lord has risen, and here's that word, indeed, and has appeared to Simon. They're saying he has risen indeed. Not, you know... Well, we heard a rumor that he had risen, or legend says that he has risen, or he's risen probably metaphorically, symbolically. They said, no, no, no. he has risen indeed. Like, we have seen him. We've been with him. We know. We've experienced this. And that reality changed their lives and has changed the world. Now, not everybody was convinced. And maybe some of you are struggling with, like, yeah, I, I like the concept of Jesus and his teachings, but this whole coming back from the dead, I struggle with it. You're not alone. In fact, there was a man named Saul, and he didn't believe it. He thought it was a hoax. He thought it was a lie. In fact, he spent a lot of time trying to get rid of all these people who were followers after Jesus saying that he was alive. And then something happened. He met Jesus, and later he would write these words, but Christ has, and he uses the same word, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep He is risen indeed. And that's what I want us to talk about today. Today, I want us to look at at two tombs and two kings. And these two tombs and these two kings are about as diametrically opposed as any tombs or any kings could ever be. They are complete opposites. And the the great thing uh, for, for me today is as I talk about this, is that I've been able to be inside of both of these tombs and learn about both of these kings in recent days. And I want to share a kind of a contrast of these two tombs and these two kings. The first tomb is one that you have probably uh, very familiar with, and it's a scene in Egypt. In fact, I've got a picture. Uh, the tomb is back here. This is me, and I've always wanted to go 2.7 seconds on a camel named Fu Manchu. All right, so anyway, it's this pyramid back here. It's the Great Pyramid. It's called the Great Pyramid of Giza. And it was originally one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's the only one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that remains. And to be quite frank, it's a tomb that is absolutely impressive. It was the tomb of the pharaoh Khufu, or also known Cheops. And it's impressive in its age, 4,600 years old. I mean, there's not a lot of man-made things that have lasted 4,600 years. That's impressive. It's impressive in its size, that at its peak, it's almost 500 feet tall. In the immensity of it, the base covers 13 acres. Uh, It's impressive in its architecture and its construction. It it was said that it took 20 years to build, and this this pyramid has 2.3 million limestone blocks Each of the blocks weighing two to two and a half tons. It's impressive in its accuracy, in the angles, in its dimension, in the lengths, in the symmetry, uh, in its coordinates. It's an impressive tomb. I don't know if you've ever walked around a cemetery. There are different grave markers. Sometimes they're a small little plaque. Sometimes they're a headstone. Sometimes it might be a statue or even a monument. But this one, man, everything else is overshadowed, literally, by this one. And it wasn't just that, that this pharaoh wanted to have the biggest, you know, headstone in, in, the, in the cemetery. There was something more about why he would build this pyramid. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it has to do with, with the, the um, Egyptian religion and their belief of life after death. And in their concept of the afterlife, it is, revolves around the ka and the ba, uh, the ka and the ba. Why don't you just, right now, wherever you are, I know it's gonna be awkward, just say ka. And if you have struggles with it, sound it out. K-A. Say it, ka. All right. It's also an ancient way that crows have communicated for years and years and years. But the ka is this. This is what it is, in essence. The ka is the invisible double person released at death. It's believed to be the life force that when someone dies, goes out of them. But it would return, enabling the deceased to enjoy the afterlife. So the Ka would return and allow them to live in the afterlife. One condition, if it could recognize the deceased. That's why the Egyptians were so much into the mummification of their leaders because they wanted to be able to, when the Ka came back, that they could be recognized. And so they would preserve their bodies. The mummification process took 70 days. So in their thinking, the Ka comes back, sees this this mummy and says, Hey, I, I, you're me. I recognize you. And then they could go on into the afterlife. Now, that's one of the tombs. We were able to go inside uh, the great tomb, the great, the great pyramid. Hold that thought for just a minute. One of the kings that we talked about or heard about a lot in Egypt, one of the pharaohs, was one named Ramses II. And Ramses II is referred to as Ramses the Great. He is the greatest most powerful, most wealthy, most celebrated pharaoh of all times. Whatever this means, I don't know. He was the third pharaoh in the 19th dynasty. He ruled for 66 years. He fathered somewhere between 90 and 100 children. But the reason he was referred to as great is because he was an incredible military leader in bringing about victory for Egypt. Not only that, but he was a builder. He built capitals and cities. He built monuments. He built temples temples. One of the famous temples that he built is a temple called um, Abu Simbel, and it's uh, very familiar. It's carved right into solid rock, and what's interesting is that he has flanking both sides of the entrance, these four statues, these four 66-foot-high statues of, like, these guardians of the temple. Any idea who these four guys might be? Well, if you said Ramses II, you're correct. He's Ramses the Great. In fact, he had carved more statues of himself than any of the other pharaohs because he wanted to be worshipped not only in life but remembered afterlife and worshipped in the afterlife. So that's this king, great accomplishments, arguably one of the most important people in Egyptian history and maybe one of the most powerful men who ever walked the face of the earth. Hold that thought. One day when we were in Egypt, we went to the, uh, the Museum of Egyptian Antiquities, which is filled with hundreds of thousands of artifacts and, and uh, archaeological um, findings, uh, one of which is King Tut's treasures. But as we were going there, they said, hey, for those who are interested— there's a secondary optional exhibit that you can go into. You'll have to pay extra, 10 or $12, but it's the mummy exhibit. It's not you know, included in the price of admission, but if you wanna go in and see these mummies, you have to pay 10 or $12, and I thought, boy, this is really dark. They're asking our people to, to shell out their own money to go into this, this room to look at these corpses of these mummies that are thousands of years old, and I've said, like, for sure, sign me up. I, I won't miss that one. That's gonna be great. And what was amazing is they said, and one of the mummies in there is Ramses II. This man who is seen as Ramses the Great, the greatest leader that Egypt had ever known. And I was so excited. Now, if you don't want to see this, this would be a good time to go refill your popcorn bowl or change the laundry or take just a little bit of a break and come back in about a minute or two. Otherwise, here's a picture of Ramses, the mummy of Ramses II. So there he is. And, and we were able to get right down there, right close to the, the case that he was in. And as I looked at this, Ramses II, this greatest man that you know Egypt had, I heard him whisper, dude, where's my car? Okay, I know, I know, I know, I know it was bad, but I've waited five weeks to say that. But I thought about, here's the, the interesting thing. This is the man who had everything, did everything, was the great, and here he is, this shriveled up, mummified pharaoh, Ramses the great. So you have the great pyramid, which was an impressive tomb, and this king, this pharaoh, Ramses the great. Contrast that with another tomb and another king. Just three days earlier, I had been inside another tomb in Jerusalem. It looks like this. Not terribly impressive. In fact, it's kind of underwhelming when you go to it. And when you go inside the tomb, it's not much bigger than a Decent-sized walk-in closet, like a garden shed where you would have your lawnmower and some tools. It's not that big. And it was in a tomb like this, some would say maybe this tomb, where another king was buried. And this king was King Jesus. And King Jesus came talking about this kingdom that he would bring in, that everyone would be a part of this kingdom that wanted to be, and that this kingdom would go on forever. And as he would talk about this kingdom, he would go around and he would do good, He was not a military leader. No military victories. In fact, he said he was the prince of peace. And unlike Ramses too, he wasn't all about himself. In fact, he said, you should die to yourself. And his greatness was not about big cities that he built or big monuments to himself. He said, here's the path to true greatness. It's learning to be the servant of all. And he demonstrated that when he washed his disciples' feet. And he never built temples, but he said something interesting one time. He did make this statement. He said, Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. No one really knew what he was talking about at that point. And so here you have this king who walks around for 33 for three years uh, in inviting people into the kingdom. And then he's convicted and he's executed amongst common criminals, and then he's buried in an unimpressive borrowed tomb. About as stark a contrast from the Great Pyramid and Ramses the Great as you could have. And yet I would say this, that that unimpressive tomb and that king who is humble is the greatest wonder in the spiritual world. It's the greatest wonder in the spiritual world, not because of the magnitude of the tomb and not because of the accomplishments in all the buildings, but because of what happened in that tomb and why it's such an incredible wonder is because there was no tomb and there was no grave and there was no stone and there was no guard and not even death itself could keep this king in that tomb. In Acts, we read this. But God raised him from the dead, fleeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Impossible for death. Could not hold on to him. Long before there was ever a Laura Ashcraft, we see the ultimate tomb raider. That there is no way that death can hold and keep its grip on Jesus. And I just want to say that that for 2,000 years, smart people... Educated people, thoughtful people have believed that this is an actual event in history. And not only that, but they have put their hope, their trust, their faith, their life and eternity on this fact that he is risen, he is risen indeed, the greatest wonder in the spiritual world. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. He says, this is really, really important. You need to understand this. There's a lot of good stuff, but this one's really important. And then he gives this kind of this just a chronological uh, litany of, of things that take place. Here's what's so important, he says. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that there was a cross, there was a grave. And there was an empty tomb. There was the crucifixion, there was the burial, and then there was the resurrection. And these are such an important part, Paul says, this is of first importance. You see, the cross and the tomb are indispensable. This isn't something you can say, well, this is a secondary issue. This must have been like a parable. This is kind of a fable that we can kind of learn, glean something out of, you know, in hard times you can come back and do it. No, no, This, this is essential. It is indispensable. If you don't have the cross and you don't have the empty tomb, you don't have Christianity. It simply doesn't exist otherwise. Think about this cross and the empty tomb And these two words that are always associated with Jesus. Crucifixion and resurrection. Well, let's let's just think about this because you say these words and immediately people's thoughts go to one man, Jesus. We'll start with crucifixion. When you say the crucifixion, why is it that that form of execution is connected directly with Jesus? I mean, what other form of execution is directed with one individual? If you could say something like, the assassination. Some might think of Kennedy or others that have been assassinated. If you said like the, the, the hanging, they might think of different people or the poisoning or the accident or, or whatever it might be, the burning of the stake. But when it comes to the crucifixion, it is tied specifically to this one man, Jesus. And why is it? What was it about this crucifixion? And what was it about this man? Because it's not like this was an uncommon deal. The Romans didn't create uh, crucifixion, the Persians did. The Romans perfected it as a torture device and as a way to put fear in people to keep them in line. And for 500 years, there were literally hundreds and thousands of people who were crucified. Some of you are familiar with with Spartacus and that whole war when there were 6,000 people crucified on the Epian Way going into Rome. There had been hundreds and thousands of people that had been crucified But we hear the word crucifixion, and we think of only one, Jesus. Why is it that his crucifixion goes above and beyond all the others? And I think maybe it's the motive behind that crucifixion and the result of that crucifixion that sets it apart. The motive was this. The motive of that crucifixion was love, which doesn't seem to make sense at all. That seems to be a paradox, But Jesus had said, Greater love has no one than this, then he laid down his life for his friends. But in the crucifixion, you see Jesus going even further because he lays down his life for his enemies. And he lays down his life for those who have betrayed him, those who have deserted him, those who have lied about him, those who have crucified him. He laid down his life for his friends, for his enemies, and he laid down his life for you and for me. Romans says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God demonstrates his love. He doesn't just say he loves us. He says, let me demonstrate how much I love you. While you're still a sinner, while we were still distant from God, while we were still enemies of God, that Christ would die for us as well. And this isn't the only place. I mean, this isn't just like a, a one-off verse. You see this theme repeated over and over again in Scripture. I'll just give you a couple. One, in 1 John, it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God says, let me show you how much I love you. It's not because you're so loving towards me. It's because I'm loving towards you. And I'll send my son to take care of your sin. Our sin, my sin, your sin. Our worst condition reveals our greatest need and exposes our utter desperation. Our worst condition is our sin. And our greatest need is to get that sin taken care of somehow. And the utter desperation is that we cannot do it on our own. I love this in Colossians chapter two, where it says, when you were dead in your sins, that's utter desperation. That's that's helplessness. I mean, you can't do anything. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. That's what God did. That's how he demonstrates his love. That's how he shows us his love. That's why this crucifixion is so different. Uh, Let me try to illustrate this. Um, using kind of maybe a, a legal illustration. Let's say that each one of us had a file, a file with our name on it, and every time we sinned, every time we made a mistake, every time we messed up, every time we blew it, every time there was a lie, we cheated, we thought something wrong, there was pride, there was lust, whatever it might be, every time there was hatred and anger and words and judgment and condemnation, and every time that we send something was put in our file. It's on record. It's a record of our offenses. And those record of our offenses stand as evidence against us if we're charged with what is in here. Now, that might be your file. Let me show you my file. This is is my file, and this is just from yesterday, okay? So when I have my file like this, there are all of these offenses that stand against me, all these charges against me. And when I come into this trial, I know I'm guilty. I mean, I, there's a guilty verdict before I ever get in there. And I've got all of these things and there are laws and there are codes and rules about how these offenses should be punished. And this is the beautiful thing. In the spiritual sense, we go into this court where we have these files filled with all of our sins. And the law stands against us. But in Colossians 2, he says, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away. All of these things that rendered me guilty, it says he took them away. And he doesn't just say, well, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. We'll just kind of brush those aside. No, He is a just God, and it says this is how he took it away, nailing it to the cross. That's why the crucifixion is so important, because I have my sin, my guilt, my conviction, but Jesus takes it on as his sin, as his guilt, as his conviction, as his punishment. He takes on the penalty. As it says in Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Here's the cool thing about the cross. This whole idea of our sins being transferred onto Jesus and being nailed to the cross, it's the double jeopardy of the cross. The double jeopardy of the cross. And this is, this is I think, some of you are thinking, well, Alex Trebek and the game show, all due respect to Alex Trebek, this is not about the game show. The whole concept of double jeopardy is a legal term. In fact, if you're familiar with the Constitution, the Fifth Amendment of our Constitution in the United States talks about the double jeopardy uh, issue. But it finds its roots way back in Roman law. In Roman law, there's this Latin phrase, non bis in item. And roughly translated, it means this. An issue decided must not be raised again. Double jeopardy means this that when someone, the accused, has gone to trial and has either been convicted or acquitted, the accused can no longer be tried for that crime or that offense again. So in the cross, I come into this deal with a guilty verdict. I've been declared guilty. I'll admit that. I'm guilty. But the conviction and the punishment and the penalty is put on Jesus And I'm acquitted. And not only that, but all of those offenses, they're expunged from my record. You see, the cross is the greatest example of selfless, sacrificial love, justice, mercy, and grace. That's why I believe that that crucifixion with that man stands out above every other one. And Paul would write this as well. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So now he's not just talking about the crucifixion. Now he begins talking about the resurrection. The fact that Jesus came back from the dead. That the grave and death itself had no hold on him, could not keep him down. This allows us to recognize that Jesus, what he said is True that Jesus is all-powerful, that he is the conqueror, that he is the Lord over everything. And, And a little side note on this one, it's the only credible reason that you could give of why the followers of Jesus and the church and Christianity even exists. Because this kingdom, this movement, had died when the Messiah died. When you're following a Messiah who promises you an eternal kingdom and he dies, your kingdom dies as well. You're left to go look for a support group for dead Messiah people. You're you're left to go find a new Messiah. Here's the amazing thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that when that happened, the church came alive. On Saturday, there was no Christianity. On Sunday, there was Christianity. On Saturday, no human had the power to start the church. By Sunday night, No human, not even hell itself, had the power to stop what Jesus had started. He is risen, and he is risen indeed. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And he called it. He predicted it. He told his disciples it was gonna happen. They didn't catch it. He told his followers it would happen. There's a time when he was talking to one of his followers, one that he really cared for her, and her brother had died. And he says these words to her. I am... Not I will. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Listen, if you can't follow up a claim like that and back that up with truth, that's a horrible thing to ask someone to put their trust and eternity in you if you can't follow through with it. But he says, I am the resurrection. And he proved it when he came back from the dead, that he was alive. And what that means is that we can trust that what he says is true and that he is the king over all things. And Peter, Peter who was one of his disciples, Peter who knew about his file folder, Peter who had denied Jesus, who had called down curses on himself saying, I I never knew this man. Peter who was well aware of the crucifixion. Peter saw him in the resurrection. And later he would write these words, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. He said, this is what's great about this, is that because of what Jesus has done, we're given a new birth. Peter said, I need that. I need a fresh start. I messed up so bad. I need that, but it's not just a new birth, but it's a living hope, that hope for this day and for tomorrow and and for our life right now, and not only that, but this inheritance for the future, and there's no expiration date, and it won't perish, and it won't fade, and it won't spoil. You see, the death and the resurrection of Jesus takes care of our past with our forgiveness, takes care of our presence with this hope and this power to live and gives us a future not only for our days here on this earth but for all of eternity because Jesus is the resurrection. And that's the great news, to be able to have Christ and his resurrection in our lives. And so often we are given promises that are full of emptiness. Easter gives us emptiness that is full of promises an empty cross, an empty tomb, an empty grave, empty grave clothes full of promises, promises of forgiveness, promises of hope, of power, resurrection power in our lives, a future of life and inheritance for all eternity. Listen, the great pyramid is an impressive tomb, very impressive. But the empty tomb of Jesus is far greater. The Great Pyramid, thousands of people laid down their life to build this monument to this one man. And Jesus' tomb, one man lays down his life to save all people. Ramses the Great, Amazing accomplishments. But he's a shriveled up mummy waiting for his call. And Jesus, the king of kings, is alive. Romans chapter four says this. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. The crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection gives us this reality that we can live in the reality of the resurrection. And for 2000 years, men and women, people like us, people who are smart, people who recognize I have a need, have lived in the reality of the resurrection. Recognizing I need forgiveness, I cannot take care of my sins. Recognizing I need a hope beyond what I can do for myself, I need a power beyond myself, and I want a future. And that's the resurrection reality. And today, I want to give you the opportunity to step into that resurrection reality with Jesus Christ right now. And this is what I'm going to ask, and I know it's going to probably feel a little bit awkward, but right now in your room, in your, in your family room or the garage, wherever you're watching, if you would just bow your heads, everybody, just go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to lead you in a prayer. And if this is something that you want in your life, and maybe right now you would pray A prayer simply goes something like this. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. And I know my file folder and I give it to you and ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I repent of these things. I need a new start. I want your life. And Jesus, I believe that you raised from the dead that you are alive and I want your resurrection hope and your resurrection power not just for someday when I die but for today and for tomorrow and for all of my life and for eternity. So Jesus, would you be my forgiver? Would you be my leader? Would you be my king? Would you change my life? I pray this in your name. Amen, amen. Listen, I believe that if you prayed that prayer, it's the first step of the change for the rest of your life. It's the greatest decision you'll ever make. And if you prayed that prayer, we would love to know that. We would love to pray and celebrate with you. In fact, if you're on the chat, right over here to the left, there's a little bar that says, I committed my life to Jesus. A little thing that says, raise your hand. And if you prayed that prayer, if you would just click on that, I just raised my hand, just so we can rejoice with you. And then, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to connect with us, you can give us some information and we'll get in contact with you. We'll give you resources to help you in your spiritual journey to live in the reality of the resurrection. And there's another button there that you can click and we'll get a hold of you uh, in the next uh, few days. Someone will, either with a call or an email, with some resources for you. I believe this is the greatest thing in the world. He has risen. He has risen indeed. The empty tomb. And Jesus Christ is alive is the great message, and he did it for us.